This is the Private Citizen, your weekly data privacy podcast, episode 31, for Thursday, the 23rd of July 2020. What exactly happened at Wirecard? Hello and welcome to the Private Citizen. My name is Fab. I am, as usual, I'm your host, uh, coming to you from Hamburg, the lovely city of Hamburg, just of runway 33, Hamburg, Hamburg International Airport, and coming to you a day late. I realize that. And um, sipping, sipping my uh, nice Earl Grey hot here. Um, yes, I realize I'm I'm a day too late. I uh, I usually commit to uh well i do commit to release an episode on wednesday and i had or you know sometimes sometimes i um i do more episodes in a week so if i put one out earlier uh, you know i might skip the wednesday uh, the wednesday one but usually by wednesday there's an episode and um i tried that i'd um i tried that yesterday i'd spent pretty much well not all day but a good chunk of yesterday um, researching the story for today and then I just couldn't finish um, finish that in time to record and get the podcast out so I pushed it pushed it back a day and um, I, um, I I tweeted about this uh, on you know Twitter um, I'm fab at fab Foxrod Alpha Bravo Sierra Hotel if you want to get a peek behind the curtain sometimes but you know I I just I couldn't 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 get it done I'm sorry for that, but I'm I'm here today. It's already late in the evening again. It's uh, nine o'clock as I'm recording this, but uh, I just my life has just been um, really, really um, chaotic recently. I mean, obviously, you know, as as is pr- pretty much the case for everybody. I guess this whole the whole situation with the coronavirus stuff has just completely messed with my work schedule but now i'm getting all these there's all these other stuff happening i mean my uh my motorbike i, I talked about that on the last episode my motorbike's broken down um now my dad had to go into hospital um they uh were thinking he might have had a heart attack a minor one but it seems like that was not the case but uh well he, he's he's doing he's doing fine but that you know that that was a scare there and it's just like stuff happening, you know. I've, I travel a lot to Düsseldorf now from Hamburg, um, basically halfway across the country here um, in Germany um, to, to to prepare stuff. You know, second flat. Uh, sadly, that doesn't come with a kitchen, which is like uh, sometimes Germany's medieval that way. Now we have to like order a kitchen and build it in, and it's just like all this stuff, all this stuff you got to do. So uh, that's all excuses. Um, I am um, I'm feeling really bad that I haven't put out the show um, in time this week, but um, I'm hoping that will be a um, a very very um, you know a thing that happens very sel- seldomly or not at all. Hopefully, but you know, there it is. Um, I might have a holiday coming up, so at for that period there won't be any shows um i said that at the beginning of the podcast that you know i'll take some time off here and there maybe to have a holiday i don't know when it's i don't know if it's gonna happen right now because you know of the i need it's a it's a motorbike trip with my dad right so my motorbike's broken and dad 
um, well, he's not really broken, but you know, I think he's he's gonna be he's gonna he's he's gonna be fine. I don't, I'm not sure about the motorbikes. I don't know when that's gonna happen, but I'm gonna make a plan as soon as we know uh, what's going on. I'm gonna make a plan for the show and tell you you know when you can expect episodes. But anyway, let's get let's stop with all this uh, nonsense. Let's get into the show. And uh, let's give you a little overview of what we're talking about today. So today we're talking about Wirecard again. I had um, done an episode about them. Um, this was episode 26. Um, there's obviously a link to that, back to that episode in the show notes, uh, privatecitizen.press. And um, that was prompted by a story on a podcast. I think this uh, was an NPR Invisibilia. Um, about a short seller that had all this crazy shit happen to him. And um, it it sounded very far-fetched, uh, but then, you know, it happened that this whole Wirecard exploded, so I talked about that on the show. But the, the general thing, still, I you know, I kind of believed the guy and I believed this was happening, but it did sound a bit far-fetched. Now, to, today I'm going to talk about more stuff that has come to light about Wirecard, which makes that original story seem pretty plausible and uh, pretty believable. This is uh, some some crazy stuff uh, we are uncovering here. Um, I'm mostly going to talk about uh, an article in the German magazine Der Spiegel today, uh, which I bought a copy of, which I'm already regretting. Um but I can, I can talk about that in a minute. But, you know, we're going to talk about Wirecard. I just wanted to explain why are we doing that. Well, the original story was kind of interesting from a privacy standpoint, just because what happened to the guy and, you know, the N- NPR podcast, uh, you, you might you might remember this little this little thing. It can happen to a private citizen. It is happening. I need like I need like filler piano music like that <laughs> no i don't that's horrible uh, uh yeah so so th- that was kind of the thing you know they were kind of saying this might happen to more people and um that is a privacy angle and, and another privacy angle which i hadn't talked about uh, on well i got kind of alluded to it i guess i didn't i didn't make it the focus of that episode but the thing being that wirecard um is is a payment provider is a bank and um these these fintech companies these these background you know the 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 guys that do the plumbing for financial transactions these days they have a lot of power over us this is something i talked about um in a in a in a previous episode when i talked about uh plat which is actually um this was what what episode was that let me look that up episode 20 the happy plumbers who know everything about you this is actually one of my most listened to episodes i think um from what i can tell from the you know from what you can tell by podcast analytics uh but you know i had kind of talked about there about the fact uh, that these 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 banks and financial um institutions and these payment providers they know everything about us because these days we're not i mean i talked about this a little bit about of the war on cash as well how this is now a, an economy because we're not paying a cash anymore which where nobody knows what you're buying um, when that was still the case, they they started tr- tracking you with you know opt in stuff. You know, like um, in Germany we have this uh, 
uh, payback where you can, you know, you, if you shop and you show your card, which is basically, so they have an ID and they can track, you know, the, the cash register knows what you've bought, but they don't know who you are. And with this card, they do. So they can connect that. And then they give you like, they give you a few cents, uh, you know, that you can spend on other stuff. Like the the rewards really is is not worth it at all. Uh, but you know, that's that was their system of, of tracking you. But now they have something a lot better because and we talked about this uh, in in um in respect to the coronavirus pandemic as well. You know, they're they're trying to push you to use digital uh transaction whenever possible here in germany everybody now takes uh they, they prefer contactless payment which is a big change uh towards like last year um there's some places where you can only pay with card now because apparently that's more secure even though um you know that's that's not borne out and you know in in relation to sars cov2 it's not borne out by the scientific data at all um it seems like there's absolute there's like very very little um spreading on surfaces the spreading the virus via banknotes was quickly debunked but still you know they don't i say they but when i say they i'm not saying like this is a big conspiracy this is not a conspiracy there are a lot of players in the field everybody basically if you if you pay somewhere everybody as something to gain if you do it digitally, if they can track you. It's like, you know, they they see what the advertising industry has done on the internet and they kind of want to do that with money. So, you know, it's it's if you it's it's from from the the ice cream shop you pay in from your local supermarket, they they want to track you. You know, it's the the payment like app that I settle or whatever that the the ice cream shop uses they all want to do this so uh, this is this is like a thing and I think it's becoming we saw that with played and I, I, I didn't really went into that when the last wirecard story because that wasn't my focus was on this whistleblower and what happened to him but I mean this I'm not I'm not going to talk about privacy per se in this episode that's why I'm I'm, I'm prefacing this keep all of this in mind when you listen to what I'm talking about and just imagine that these people are the ones that hold all this information about you and then it will become clear what's going on. Um, now, before we get into the story, why am I sad that I brought the speak uh, that I bought uh, the copy of the speaker? Well, <laughs> it's because they're fucking Luddites. I just like, whenever I read like there's stuff in this story where, um, so they are kind of saying that, the that Wirecard, you know, this this poster child for the German internet economy, you know, where we never really we don't have really startup culture here. This doesn't really work. We do business in a different way, but everybody wants to be like Silicon Valley. So Wirecard was like the one company that was like financial technology where they all said, "Wow, oh, this is great," and I think they generally usually overestimated how how innovative this was and one of the reasons is and i think this is a big constant that i see again and again that people in german tech industry i mean they all speak english they listen to english podcasts you know show they read english websites they they watch english like stuff from american tv and british tv on youtube and stuff like that but generally speaking the german especially the financial people i guess they're, they're not like they're not up to the to the to what they're not 
they're not in tune with what the tech world is doing so this phenomenon i'm because i'm from the beginning started listening to american um especially american but also english but generally american um tech podcasts i saw this pattern in like this is 2004 right as i saw this pattern where like it takes some something takes off in the u.s and then it takes four to five years when it then takes off the same way in germany but it's just like that later it i think that period is probably getting shorter now but uh the first time i noticed this was with facebook where um by the time i started using facebook everybody in germany was like on this clone um everybody was using this clone there was this german company which had completely cloned facebook i mean it was this, the exact same interface in red um i knew about facebook i had i think i had an account there i mean this is like actually in different account than the one i'm using now. I, I went off facebook for a while and very early on uh but uh that's beside the point um so this this german um thing when i saw that the first time, i was like my god they completely ripped up face facebook designs are they allowed to do this so in germany and then that company you know is, is gone now i mean everywhere at some point like five years later everybody switched to facebook um so in germany you can do this thing where like as a german entrepreneur i'd say you 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 look what what silicon valley is doing right now you copy that and or like i don't know if it still works now but like until at least like you know five to ten years ago you could do that you could just copy what what the americans are doing and then um make it your own product and then in germany everybody wouldn't know the american thing and they'd be like oh you invented this basically you'd never really claim you invented it you would just you know pretend and people would like yeah okay just assume you invented it and this is uh in this in this in, <laughs> in this uh in the story they talk about like wirecard being um or like this this ceo of wirecard uh brown being the um, marcus brown being the um um being the uh the elon musk of the i think they they actually say that they say they actually it's uh Mis they, they mistype Musk's last name. Uh, they call him Musik, which is German for music. I think that's autocorrect. But like uh, they say, the Elon Musk of the financial world, which is hilarious because Elon Musk is the Elon Musk of the financial world. I mean, this is like writers for the for their Spiegel who don't know who Elon Musk is. They know him as like the CEO of Tesla and of SpaceX, but they haven't thought about where he made his money. Elon Musk made his money by you know creating an online bank payment slash payment provider which then got bought by another company which got turned into paypal so he became you know he ran paypal and he that's how he made his money and the thing that wirecard is doing is like almost like in some respects it's like a clone of exactly what paypal is doing paypal went to the consumer market wirecard was more like it's more like a b2b thing i guess but uh I mean, they completely ripped off what PayPal was doing. PayPal was there earlier. And also when they're lauding how what how great Wirecard is, they're like basically sound like they never heard of Plaid. Because Plaid is actually what Wirecard is just in in it works. I mean the reason we will see why this whole Wirecard thing fell apart uh was because they couldn't and you know, they weren't doing what Plaid was doing. They couldn't actually make that payment transaction stuff work and then it's just like it's a spiegel then i just like i just opened today i was i was finished with the research i was just idly flipping to the magazine and, and i decided to read one other story and it was like but just picked randomly out of the magazine right a one page story about this um 
neo-Nazi nutcase who, you know, gunned people down uh, in Halle. And <laughs> it's like, you read like the story and it's a one-page story. So, you know, presumably they put the best stuff in there. And one-page magazine story is really not. If you're telling a story, that's really not much, right? That's like what's the shortest things you can do in like a magazine like that. So you're picking what stuff you put in there. Like, and in the beginning of the story, some, you know, it's a story starts and then, it goes on and it talks about basically how bad he is and there's like one throwaway side sentence where i guess they want to show how insane this guy was or how weird he was and they say he spent whole days on the internet and you're like is this 2020 what is this fucking lead magazine i'm reading i know i bought a print magazine but like my god he spent a day on the internet like, guys, have you talked to your tech editors, right? The guys who do technology news? Have you talked to the guys who actually write for your fucking website, Spiegel.de? You know, they're spending days on the internet because that's what you do today when you research. I mean, I spent months on the internet, probably. If and if that goes, if that just shows how, like, insane and likely to shoot somebody you are, then I'm, like, off the chart. <laughs> I should probably should shouldn't say that they'll send the police around, but I mean it's just yeah. Uh, this, this is why I only buy their Spiegel if I have to. If, the, if this is uh, there's a story, but you know, let's it's enough waffling. It's already almost twenty minutes. Let's get into the actual story. So uh, what what are we talking about here? So th- this is a uh, quite fascinating cover story on Wirecard. It's called like the case, the Wirecard case or something. It's it's quite interesting, uh, which you know that's why I'm talking about it here today. But I mean, it's the it's it's Spiegel, so they they, they start off like real bombastically, like, like oh, it's a story like a Bond movie, and they call it "The Hunt for Doctor No" is like the headline of the article, and um, they're overdoing it a bit. And the story also suffers from from the scour- scourge of modern journalism. It's like they start off with the stuff we know, but this is all stuff I covered like in episode twenty six, and then the new stuff is all just like. Oh, sources familiar with the matter, and you know people who know people who know people, and we we saw documents, and it's like the sourcing is really off. Uh, it's it's really not good. It gets worse the the more the the weirder the story gets. Um, but I still think it's valid. Um, I think in this case it's it's not malicious. I don't think they made it up, which Spiegel is kind of famous for now with you know Relotius, that one guy who just made up only stories. And you know, the Spiegel um was always like a bastion of German journalism. They apparently have like this um they they bragged for like decades that they have this archival staff which when somebody writes a story, an editor writes a story, then they check that. And they have all these fact checkers. Uh, but they had an editor for like four years, just invented shit, <laughs> you know, and shit you could have checked. And she went, people checked afterwards and it's like, it was obviously wrong. I mean, it was like completely wrong. I mean, he was like, I went to this American town and like talked to this woman and gave her name. So they could have just rang her up, right? And asked like, do you actually, did you actually talk to our editor? <laughs> and she was said no. Um, or the person, you know, who was seen in person didn't exist and stuff like that. He just made up shit. Um, so it's kind of weird. I, th- I think in this case, they're not being malicious. I think in this case, it's, this is like an insider kind of story. And I believe that it talked to all the people 
Um, but you know, you obviously can't name them. And they, I mean, there's so much sketchy and weird shit that we know is true that, you know, I kind of, I kind of believe them, even though it's, it's like off the, off the, off the, off the chart a little bit. Um, so this, the story actually came, I don't know. I think it, it, the, the Genesis is like, they wanted to write a different story because in the beginning, Spiegel has this editorial page in, in, in the front of the magazine where they talk about the higher profile, sto- profile stories and talk a little bit of chop. And they, they were talking about that. They talked to this, uh, this Wildcard CEO, Marcus Braun, uh, in November of 2019. And now already they were talking about like fraud because people were, you know, I, I talked about this last episode, people were um, saying there was fraud within the company. And, uh, but, you know, the writers knew him and they, there's, a, there's like a picture where you can see they, they met him as early as 2018. So I think they wanted to write a dif- different story. And there's lots of editors on the story. So I feel like they had like a, a different story. And then all this shit happened and they just did some more research and it turned into a completely different story. But basically, what the, what Spiegel is alleging, this is um, a little bit, um, you know, building on episode 26. So if you haven't listened to episode 26, this is probably a good point to go do that before you keep listening to this, because I don't want to go over all that stuff again. Uh, I'm just going to fill in some gaps and stuff. So basically Spiegel's alleging that everybody knew that there was shit going on at Wirecard, like from like as early as 2005. Um, So they were doing all kinds of stuff. mainly inflating their books and pretending that they had customers. Um, So they were in kind of this B2B area of payment provider stuff. So where they basically, they bought other companies and just um, pretended to have all these customers, like other companies as customers, which weren't there. And and they had all these profits that didn't exist. Um, Mostly because they were kind of, I don't know. They've been around for quite a long time. They were founded in 99. So before the actual first bubble burst, but uh, they were um, kind of in the startup, not kind of a startup company, but like in the startup mood where they like need growth. Right. And so this was basically their way to just pretending they were growing, even though the opposite was, was true. And then we're doing this quite successfully. And the, the Spiegel is kind of alleging that everybody knew what was going on. And pretty much, or I didn't know, but was suspecting because there were all these rumors for years. And I talked about this with the short sellers that said this for years. And the thing is just um, that nobody wanted to know that. So Spiegel is saying that basically people were kind of guessing that this was the case, that there was shady shit going on, but nobody wanted to know. Because this was the one German company, Poster Child, this was like kind of proving that we can do innovation in Germany in a tech field, right? Um, as, as they put it in this article, like we didn't invent Google, like Tesla is kicking BMW's ass. So this was the one thing we had. So nobody really wanted to look. And that's, it's you know, if you're... That's that's questionable already if you're a journalist, although journalists, especially from the Financial Times, Spiegel is kind of pointing out, oh, we were reporting critically, although I've never seen anything, like, certainly not high profile in, in the Spiegel, although I didn't know who, what Wirecard was, so, uh, until a few months ago, so I, I don't know. Uh, but um, they were, um, 
I mean, Financial Times was, dri- was driving this. But there were certainly journalists looking the other way, but even worse, like polit- politicians and like um, watchdogs and, you know, institutions that bank um, overseeing institutions, they were looking the other way. And uh, prosecutors were looking the other way. And that's that's the really... Um, that's that's the that's the that's the big issue here. Um, we we still don't know what was what happened. We don't know how much of their capital of the, the money we're talking about here was fake. How much disappeared? Um, we don't know why EY so Ernst Young like the um, previously Ernst Young EY the um, auditors kept signing off on their reports because they must. I mean, either they also looked the other way and were maybe incentivized to look the other way uh, or they're like incredibly dumb and like shit auditors I mean if you're an auditor it's your job to go look for irregularities right and if you look at all the stuff that's in the story and that came out like if they had looked they, had, they would have found this because I mean case in point the other auditors who came in later which I'm going to talk about in a bit I mean they found this stuff almost immediately so we don't know what was going on there. There's going to be lots of investigations. At the end of the story, Spiegel says this is by far, this isn't over. And I completely am with them on that. I'm just going to have political repercussions and stuff. Um, but um, what we know is like, you know, the company's fucked. Uh, the, the investors lost a lot of money. They're fucked. And about probably 5,800 employees will all lose their jobs. Um and this is like the biggest banking, well, it's the biggest economic scandal in the history of the Federal Republic, I would guess. Because like, you know, two, three years ago, they this company got into the DAX, which is the, the, the very prestigious German, you know, the biggest blue chip companies. And if all this is true, like if people knew that as early as 2005, these guys were like cooking the books and doing shady things, like, you know, the German financial establishment should have, at the point where they were going into the DAX, people should have asked questions at that point, at the latest. So this is all like, um, it really looks bad for, um, for the German for the German financial market as as a whole. And um, this is um. The Spiegel basically seems to blame all of this on the two main people, uh, CEO Markus Braun and his right hand and uh, chief operating uh, officer Ian Amasalek. And Masalek is, well, Braun was arrested, uh, got free on bail, 5 million euros. Uh, now there's another um, warrant outstanding for him, I think, not because he ran or you know, jump bail, but there's just another warrant. Um, Masalek is on the run and uh, for about four weeks now. And so this is basically saying, the Spiegel is basically saying it's it's those two guys. Now, Brown's an interesting guy. He was like dressed in like a Steve Jobs turtleneck um, and was kind of portrayed as this nerd, studied uh, business IT. And um, apparently... Um, well, you'd think um, a pension for numbers, but never talked about numbers. 
uh, whenever like the financials came up, you always talk grand vision and stuff like that. So yeah, this is kind of like this company is kind of trying um, in that regard to emulate like the star- Silicon Valley, you know, startup kind of thing. You know, US companies in that way where you're you're talking AI and you're talking all this all this honestly like from technological standpoint bullshit um, to you know ah oh, the future blah 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 um but it looks like he did that to hide that their original numbers uh were inflated and there was other stuff going on not only like inflating numbers but also like they they inflated like their customer numbers by buying other companies and it seems like there were instances where they actually bought Com- companies or in one case they bought a financial fund uh which uh, is alleged to have belonged to masalek and they're alleged to all you know the exec- executives uh taking a cut whenever they're buying these companies which of course uh, is in most cases probably be illegal um and then just pretending that the company was making more money than it actually was but there's also money laundering charges um especially from the u.s uh, and this this all seems to be have a genesis in or about 2006. So what happened in 2006 is that so Wirecard originally payment provider, but its biggest market in the beginning was processing payments um, from pawn sites and online gambling sites. They did this because you know these these businesses weren't served by by more traditional payment providers and banks because you know all seems a bit sleazy and stuff also higher risk but also higher margins um but there was a problem in 2006 because the u.s outlawed um for a while i think they changed that at some point some years ago but anyway back then they outlawed uh, the like processing uh, payment, uh, credit card payments for online gambling. So they made it illegal to do online gambling with credit cards. And at least with like US credit cards, I guess. Um, I always, you know, I remember from back in the day, there was a ways around with having credit cards from other countries. I read a lot about that. But um, so, and this, a lot of the Wirecard's core business collapsed at this point. And their first of these shady acquisitions was done in 2007, apparently. And this is where, like, the new kind of shady business model uh, emerged. Now, according to this Spiegel story, there were two kind of different sides to Wirecard. Um, They maintained that there was, like, the European business which I guess mostly Brown was in charge of, but he was in charge of everything. But, but you know, which was a business with real clients, you know, real revenue and payment processing. And then there was, but by all accounts, that business uh, got worse and worse. They actually lost money for the last few years on actually p- their payment processing side. And then there was the Asian business, which was run by Masalek, which was apparently mostly fake, and but this is where the growth numbers came from. So apparently they Masalek kind of, you know, through by himself or through like colleagues and accomplices or whatever or people he you know did business with created companies that Wirecard then bought and then there was like lots of stuff 
about you know lots of the um the the you know stuff being fake you know customers being fake all the the revenue being fake and stuff like that um now the first time Wirecard actually um kind of made the news was in 2005 when a German financial watchdog which is kind of like a semi-governmental semi-private organization that that keeps watch on investments and stuff like that they um raised the alarm about Wirecard but in a pattern that is going to repeat um because one of their officials of this organization actually made money short selling Wirecard stock um, in relation to this announcement, you know, did they made this, uh, they claimed that Wirecard was, was, there were irregularities and then announcement came out and the, the stock fell and this guy made money on short selling um, Wirecard. Sorry, my, my nose is a bit blocked here. Um, <clears throat> allergies. Um, and this is, um, and actually the, the state prosecutor's office, like the Bavarian state prosecutor's office in Munich, actually then investigated the watchdog and not Wirecard. And this is, you know, uh, they also banned later on, they banned short selling. This was uh, the Financial Times was reporting on Wirecard. Uh, and I talked about this in a previous episode. And um, they actually uh, investigated the editors of the Financial Times, not the shady shit that was going on at Wirecard. So this is why this whole thing is like a huge scandal because you can see that at 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 all points there's like it seems like they're being protected or people look the other way. Now interestingly, um Wirecard's this this downfall, um which I talk about on the on the uh on that other episode, but what I haven't talked about because I didn't know is how this whole thing actually started. So this whole thing started when SoftBank which is a Japanese uh, tech uh, conglomerate. They invest in lots of stuff. Uh, they have a lot of controversial investments. Uh, you know, WeWork, stuff like Uber. They, you know, they, they've done, they've lost lots of money as well uh, in investing in companies. But uh, so, so SoftBank is investing in Wirecard. But we're never, ev- apparently everybody else never had, really checked to do that due diligence what was going on with Wirecard when when SoftBank invested I guess because they're Japanese and then even more fastidious than Germans uh, they were like okay so they are probably because there were these rumors that stuff was going on it was like okay we want to know what is going on and um, I guess they didn't trust EY probably for a good reason so in November 2019 um, they got special auditors uh, from KPMG, which is another auditing co- firm, um, to look into the Wirecard business. And they almost immediately started finding things that the EY people didn't. Um, so the thing that kicked us off is they Wirecard had done business uh, with the, or bought, I think if first done business and bought a company called Al Alam Solutions. So this is like the Middle East stuff, right? They they did a lot of business with Wirecard in the Middle East. And they were implicated in an earlier Financial Times story as uh, having a lot of non-existent 
retailers as their customers. So Wirecard's whole thing in this Asian business mostly wasn't so much technology and um, payment processing, but there's also this thing where I guess when companies buy from companies, you do this thing where... um, So you have a company that wants to buy something from another company that's probably never done business with, and it's a larger amount. You just, you don't, like, that company that is producing something probably has to wind up like a a manufacturing process, right? So they want to see some money uh, before they start doing that, because winding that up will cost them money. Uh, The other company just does, but doesn't want to, pay money for to company that we've worked with um, if they don't see any product stuff like that so you have companies like wirecard who do like this i think it's called acquisitions or something it's like um you're basically like a middleman right you guarantee to the one company that the other company is going to pay and conversely you know you guarantee that the product's going to to ship so you basically pay them the money in advance i guess to to start producing the product and then you take some of the risk and you get fees for all that um which they apparently you don't get much fees which is why this why they never really made as much money as i thought they would anyway so uh when when kpmg started looking into this lm company they found out that it had uh already it had been shut down uh, maybe because of financial time story i didn't i couldn't kind of pinpoint that but uh so llm was supposed to have made uh around 2 billion euros uh, in revenue for wirecard and this money when they shut down the company uh was supposedly i mean they, i think they 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 got bought by wirecard as well in one of these things uh, it actually seems like masalek you know created llm Anyway, so when they shut that company down, they paid those two billion into two accounts with two Philippine banks, banks in the Philippines. Um, and there was some this guy who the trustee was gonna gonna look um, over it. Now, I didn't realize in the first story when I talked about the first story uh, why I mean I talked about the Philippines, but I didn't realize why this was in the Philippines. Now, according to the Spiegel, the, the Philippines are one of the few countries which aren't part of the global financial system, and um, so apparently this country is, as the Spiegel says, a global hotspot for money laundering, and because of this, most international banks don't do business with companies in the Philippines. They actually close down their um local subsidiaries there because the US which is um I mean this all goes back to 9/11 you know they 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 started cracking down on money laundering because you know uh financing of terrorism and all that um and they actually penalize banks uh, that do business in the Philippines they penalize them in the US and so everybody basically shut the banks down because everybody does business with the US um and because this country, because the Philippines aren't, they're not part of this system, right? The, the you know, whatever they, the, the checks and balances, the whatever conventions they have. Um, so you can, you can commit fraud there and it will not, is, is not easily detected from without the Philippines. It's not, you know, it's, it's not part of the system where it's, if you, um, 
if you have an if you if, if I do business in the US, right? And I tell them, okay, so I got this money, it's in an it's in an account with this German bank. Then like let's say a, a US bank, whoever uh, if authorized, could check that this account actually exists because there's a system, you know, Swift or whatever. There's a system for that. Now, with the Philippines, you can't do that. So saying that you have money in the bank there is kind of like, yeah, okay, it w- won't get detected as easily because it's hard to find out. You probably have to travel there and ask somebody, um, which is exactly what KPMG did. Because when they started to try to figure out where these 1.9 billion we are talking about that gone missing were, um, they found this trustee, a, call, a guy called Mark Tolentino. I think I mentioned him in the early episode as well. Um, he used actually used to be a high-ranking member of the Philippine Ministry of Transport. But then he was fired because of irregularities. And now he's apparently a YouTube um, celebrity in the Philippines. But he also, uh, I think has uh, disappeared um anyway so they were kpmg was like i can't we can't we don't you know we want to look into this ey hasn't done the job so so teams from kpmg and ey accompanied by masalek uh, traveled to the philippines uh, in march of this year and apparently uh employees at the local banks um told him yeah yeah the, the money is there the account is there so the spiegel says these were probably paid off, uh, bought off, uh, you know, probably by Masalek. And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, the, the money's kind of is there, but we can't get the official documents right now because everything's shut down because of coronavirus. Of course, uh, Corona is at fault. Uh, so, so KPMG uh, was like, okay, I guess we believe you. Now, EY, I guess, was was now starting to get, I don't know, maybe there were new people there or whatever. Somebody was like, this, is, this isn't right. So they um, requested, like, confirmation of this money from the Philippines and, like, these bank statements. And apparently the Spiegel saw them as well. And apparently EY was like, we're not sure if these are real or counterfeit. Um, so they requested the banks in the Philippines like transfer like a token amount, let's say a dollar to like one of their accounts um, just to prove that this at least prove that this account exists. And, you know, I guess you can, if it's not part of the system, but you can obviously you can transfer money probably takes a bit longer. Um, but uh, nothing happened. And at this point, people start investigating actually probably go higher up in the philippine banks and basically this is what we talked about in the in the previous shows this is when like the philippine banks were like okay the money doesn't exist and these statements were fraud and these people were probably paid off and and that's when everything collapse collapses and you know everything else that happens from that point um you know if you listen to that to that previous episode um i think i talked about that pretty in depth. Now, at this point, the uh, Spiegel story takes a turn and mostly um, starts dealing with with the two people, with Markus Braun, the CEO, and his CEO, Jan Masalek. It's mostly about Masalek, but in the beginning, we kind of need to know how this whole thing got started, how they you know know each other, how, how, this, how, how they came to be where they are in the company. 
and this is where it gets very speculative and hearsay so i don't want to like if if you want to sue somebody because you think all of this is uh, libelous or whatever um don't sue me i'm just reporting what the dash beagle is reporting if if they did something wrong uh please you know go to the uh my neighbors here in hamburg at the erikus spitze and uh take it up with them but uh, as i said in the beginning i, I think this is mostly it's it's sourced uh it's not sourced to my satisfaction but uh, we actually i actually have as uh this is actually is actually by chance but we have a listener writing in later about this and maybe i can discuss the sourcing a little bit more um but um so masalek is 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 which is has a, has an interesting history so i they kind of they're a bit snobbish at the spiegel and i think they're holding this against them i won't but i i think it's interesting to mention so he's a high school dropout and he was hired by wirecard actually pretty much i think by the previous ceo by brown's predecessor um when he was 20 because he was kind of good with computers and he knew stuff about warp WAP. This is like, okay, there's maybe people listening to this podcast when who weren't born when this was the rage. So, Wirecard was founded in 1999, and I don't know when he was hired, but it must have been, um, I don't know, around uh, around that time. I'm sorry, the Epic Game Store is telling me that stuff is free. This popped up right over my show notes. That kind of distracted me. Um, so he gets hired because he knows about WAP. And WAP was like this thing um, when when internet on mobile phones wasn't fast enough to actually do the internet. You had this protocol called WAP and you could do like, like internet light. I don't know. This is, I think they hired him because he knew what was going on and he, he must have been one of the few in Germany because this is at a time when most Germans are just coming to the terms with to terms with the internet uh as it is in itself and um and then you know brown um not not brown um brown's predecessor hired Masalek and he you know he made he rose to the ranks quite quickly actually uh quite um um surprisingly you know considering his background uh you know most companies probably wouldn't hire a high school dropout uh you know position like this but uh so there was this internal project called yka 2.0 which failed and uh Masalek was kind of in charge of that or even you know he was blamed for hiding the fact that things were going wrong for a long time from the uh, god now the what now the epic game store launcher wants to do shit wait i have to i have to shut this thing down it's going it's going rogue it's going rogue it's going rogue um no i shut it down anyway um so he uh he was kind of so that was his internal project it failed he kind of got blamed because he was kind of in charge but he didn't tell anybody that things were going wrong and but this was like bad this was like jeopardizing the future of the company so they got uh Wirecard got external advisors in from kpmg you know this company that later on kicks all this stuff off now who 
they get in to fix everything and kick everybody in shape in at Wildcard? Marcus Braun, who uh, apparently made such an impression that he later joined Wildcard. And now we have some, you know, this is alleged. This is the, clearly alleged. Uh, the, the language in the Spiegel is quite uh, esoteric. Um, so apparently this is how Brown and Masalek came to run Wirecard. Um, so there was claimed that there was a break-in at the company, at Wirecard, and Brown's and Masalek's laptops were stolen. Now on these laptops were like all of these trade secrets. And they are alleged to have turned up at a company called EBS Holdings, which was founded by a Munich um, um, uh, you know, finan financier, I guess you'd say, you know, like a businessman. And he this this company back then was running a lot of porn and gambling sites. Now, because I guess Wirecard was also in this business, they were kind of competitors. Now, Wirecard has now kind of lost its technological edge, all its trade secrets, to a competitor. So the company is kind of close to going broke, which makes it vulnerable, and it gets bought. And guess who buys it? EBS Holdings. So this company that apparently allegedly stole their trade secrets. Now, after they get bought by EBS Holdings, who becomes CEO? Of Wirecard, Braun. And who becomes CTO? Marsalek. Funny. So I guess the Spiegel is alleging with this that they staged that um, to take over the company. And that they probably were in cahoots with EBS Holdings, which is a pattern that, you know, I mean, this is this is seems likely because this seems like what became the new de facto Wirecard uh, business model, uh, especially in Asia. And then this would explain why um, Braun and Mazalek were kind of tight. Although um, they weren't, apparently over the last years, uh, they've had kind of a rift between them and they weren't seeing eye to eye. Um, colleagues apparently are saying that, ex-colleagues, that uh, Mazalek was um, caring less and less about what, what Braun had to say. Uh, but... This is, um, back then they were kind of, they must have been close. The, the funny thing is that Masalek was like, so you, so apparently I should talk to high ranking Wirecard people, high ranking executives. And they're like, we, I don't know what this guy looks like. We've never seen him. He was like in the company HQ twice in, and he's been with the company. I don't know for what, almost 20 years. And apparently he was just jetting around the world and, you know, being in Vienna when he had time off, but like never visiting the company. He was never at any investor stop. You know, he was never there. Um, so that's, that's, that makes him kind of a weird character. Um, now, Masalek and Braun are both Austrian and especially Braun is uh, well-connected apparently in the high society in Vienna, but Masalek, if you believe the Spiegel, has like all this interesting stuff. Apparently he's invested in Syria. He's He has a penchant for, you know, he likes military stuff and intelligence services. He's been alleged to have been working for the GU, um, the Russian uh, military intelligence uh, agency, uh, mostly, uh, well, 
It's also known as the GRU. That's not the actual name anymore, but that's what most people know them by. Um, and interesting, you know, while Brown has connections to the Austrian high circles of the Austrian government, uh, Masalek uh, was implicated in this Ibiza gate thing. So that is like the scandal that uh, that basically uh, capsized the, the previous Austrian um, government. Where, so I'm not really completely up to it. I'm, I must admit, I'm, I'm not as up in Austrian politics as I should be. I usually have enough to worry with like the stuff I care about, uh, you know, the, in Germany and then, you know, for the show, the US or the UK or whatever. Um, but uh, you know, it, it was basically this thing where like, um, the, the vice chancellor and people from his party is like this F FPU, um, party they were in ibiza like and there was like this woman they were set up it was like the setup where they had a camera and a hidden camera and this uh this woman who um basically said she was a daughter of a russian oligarch um uh, offered them all these like manipulating the press and whatever and they were talking about like dirty tactics they were going to use and uh so you know it basically killed that government. Now, there's a big investigation going on in Austria about this right now, uh, unsurprisingly. And apparently, Jan Mesalek has turned up in the um, in these documents in text messages where he apparently he is referred to as uh, the Jan uh, from BVT, so Jan of the BVT. The BVT is the Austrian Domestic Intelligence Service. The uh, the so our 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 uh, internal uh, intelligence service called Bundesamt für Verfassungsschutz here in Germany. Now the Austrians, they want to be more German. So theirs is called Bundesamt für, Verfassungs Bundesamt für Verfassungsschutz und Terrorismusbekämpfung. Uh, so it's the, uh, the, the uh, federal office for the protection of the constitution and the fight against terrorism. Um, now the Spiegel story doesn't I think they don't know otherwise they would have made it clear but they don't, they don't know what of the BVT means so we are not clear did he work for them in some capacity was he a spy more likely probably he was an informant or he he was maybe connected to their circles and just claimed to be um he definitely had information uh from those circles so so we don't know he has claimed to be have been in Syria during the height of height of the war with the help of Russian nationals. Some guy who apparently used to be high ranking guy in the GRU and um, or the GU and is still like has close contacts. We don't know. Apparently, Masalek at some point had access to a report where uh, he was showing to business partners that included the um, formulation for the nerve agent Novichok. This is uh, what uh, Sergei Skripal and his daughter were attacked with in Salisbury uh, in 2018. And you don't like that. It's not clear what Novichok is. Right, you have to be like in special. So it's like a report from a chemical weapons uh, oversight committee. You know, it's not like it's not on Wikipedia. You can't just look up what that stuff is. Um, so to to know that, I mean, he said he knew that. We don't know if that was all real. Could have been fake. A lot of stuff with Wirecard was fake, but that just tells you what kind of a guy he was. He just like kind of um, bragged with that at the 
business meeting. Um, and of course, both of them, you know, especially Brown had connections to the, uh, to the Austrian government, especially to the FPÖ and, uh, also to some extent to Germany and the, the, like Wirecard and the German, um, and Angela Merkel's office is, is, uh, is involved in this somehow. So, and there, there, there are lots of stuff alleged about Germany and how, you know, BaFin and the, the, the banking, uh, watchdog and all these, you know, the, 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 the prosecutors, how ne- nobody was looking into this shit. Um, so there's, there's stuff that will come to light, I guess, at some point. Now we have a, an English story that I quoted some stuff on that, um, I also put in the show notes, private citizen press. Um, thanks to Bellingcat, who was um, involved in this investigation. And according to Bellingcat, Masalek is um, under observation by the FSB. So that's the uh, in, you know internal security service of the R- Russian internal security service, the KGB uh, predecessor. Uh, successor, sorry. Um, and uh, this is sourced by, apparently Bellingcat, so I, I missed this, previous story but then we usually read their stuff um apparently they have access to an internal fsb immigration database due to a whistleblower and this is what this stuff is from and there is they're saying masalek who is on the run uh is now hiding in belarus and i'm going to read a little bit from this bellingcat story on the 18th of june 2020 the management team so this is my Wirecast management team. Uh, the management team, including Jan Masalek, was fired. He told his colleagues that he was going to the Philippines to chase and find the missing billions in order to prove his innocence. Later that day, well, he, I think he told them a lot of this in chat messages. I think many people, a lot of people never really saw him. <laughs> These lots of passwords with lots of different pictures. Um one with beard, one without a beard, stuff like that. Um, later that day, well, he, he said he went to the Philipp- he was going to the Philippines in order to change, prove his innocence. Later that day, he went missing as well. While airline bookings and immigration records showed he had made his way to Manila on the 23rd of June and left onward to China, an investigation by the Philippines authorities found that the trip had been a red herring and immigration records had been forged on his behalf. So note, somebody forged Philippine immigration, like that's not, I mean, paying off some people in a bank, telling some auditors that money is just one thing. Forging immigration records? I don't know. That, you know, uh, Spiegel kind of says, alleges that this speaks to intelligence service connections. Seems plausible to me. Um... And the records had been forged on his behalf. Since then, Jan Masalek has been wanted by German and Austrian authorities on charges of fraud and embezzlement. Bellingcat, in cooperation with with its investigative partners, Der Spiegel and The Insider, have now established the location to which Masalek fled just hours after his sacking. The capital of the Belarus, Minsk. In addition, Russian immigration records and data kept by Russia's FSB suggest that Russia's security service had a long-standing interest in Masalek, who used a number of different passports, including a third-country diplomatic passport, to visit Russia dozens of times in the last 15 years. At least on one occasion in 2017, Russia's security services are likely to have 
had a lengthy interaction with Masalik in Moscow. So this FSB database is just like the immigration database. Anybody who goes to Russia turns up in that. Now, what is interesting is that they didn't, usually they only trace, like you if you're just a normal foreign citizen, the database will apparently just have your date, immigration, what flight you came in on, stuff like that, and your um, date and flights and stuff for exit of the country. But apparently for Masalik, they also kept data on other flights from other, like from, I don't know, Germany to Dubai, right? So they had all this data on him. Kind of not sure why they had an interest in him. Uh, could just be that they found him suspicious. Maybe they wanted to recruit him. Uh, another possibility, of course, is the FSB is, you know, intelligence services are always rivals and the GRU and the FSB are um, one of the biggest rivals in the uh, Russian intelligence um seen as far as i understand uh, maybe you know we do have russian listeners if they know more um as always a welcome feedback on the show uh you know private citizen or press uh, contact details are there under uh, producer feedback but also in the footer um basically goes to my blog fab dot industries slash contact fab fab alpha bravo dot industries um Please tell me about it. Um, as, as far as I can understand, uh, this rivalry is, is, is uh, especially uh, large because in Russia, all the intelligence services report directly to the, uh, you know, to Vladimir Putin, to the, I think, is he president? I get confused because he switches roles all the time. But I think, I think to the president. Anyway, they report to the head of state. Um, and the GRU is the only one who doesn't because it it is a military intelligence uh, service and it reports to the uh, general staff of the Russian armed forces. Of course, they also, you know, report to Putin. Uh, but uh, it's kind of... You know, this it's it's kind of like you know in in uh, in the U.S. the uh, CIA NSA rivalry is uh, legendary. So it's kind of like that thing. So it could have been if he was a GRU GRU agent, uh, it is plausible that the FSB knew that and was watching him because of that. Now, um, just going back to the stuff I mentioned before, but Balenkat sums this up nicely. So this is all of Mosalek's uh, shady shit that doesn't have anything to do with Wirecard directly. Quoting, Since 2015, he, that is Masalek, uh, has pursued projects in Libya, including investing in the Libya Cement Company and has engaged with Russian advisors and European officials to discuss plans for, quote, humanitarian reconstruction in Libya, end quote, seen by observers as a plan to establish a mercenary force to protect commercial interests in the war-driven country. Masalek's advisor in the Libyan initiative was the, Rus was the Russian Andrei Chaprigin, Andrei Shiprigin, a Russian-Arab world expert who Western intelligence services believe is a former GIU senior officer maintaining close ties with the intelligence community. Masalek collaborated with the Austrian-Russian Friendship Society. The organization received classified documents from Masalek apparently obtained from Austria's Interior Ministry and Security Service BVT. 
He also passed classified information and provided ge geopolitical advice to the country's far-right populist party, the FPÖ. Now, one side note here, I would, I don't know if far-right is correct in a sense. I mean, if we have Austrian listeners, maybe they can chime in on this, but I feel like, um, I mean, the FPÖ uh, was, is, is, is certainly a right-wing party. Um, I, I think calling them populist is quite right. Uh, they're not a new-style populist party. They've been around since the 50s, as far as I can tell. Um, they are, you know, they've been involved in several governments. Um, I, I don't know. Like, in, in my, so this is personally from my perspective, especially as a German, um, I think you have to treat Austrian, I mean, you have to, you know, every country has its, like, specialities in these kind of things, in, you know, politics and and especially as a German, I feel Austria because uh, Austria, f from a German perspective, you know, Germany was um, after the war was was very stringently, uh, you know, there was the big denazification going on, and you know, with 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 it being uh, occupied territory and stuff like that. Um, of course, you can always argue that didn't go far enough. Our uh, interior intelligence service pretty much recruited all the people from the Nazi intelligence service. You know, there were people in in uh, judges that were you know known Nazis. And when I'm talking Nazis, yeah, I don't mean like the millennial definition of Nazi. I'm talking actual Nazis, party party members of the NSDAP. Um, but you know, the denazification could have gone further in Germany as well, but it, it was far from more pronounced here than it was in Austria. And from a German perspective, uh, like some stuff in Austria, like accepted political parties and mainstream political opinion are far more right wing than would be acceptable in Germany. So I feel like far right in Austria, at least from my perspective, means even more right than far right in Germany. And, you know, in Germany, like the NPD is like the, uh, the, you know, you could call that a far right party. Far right to me always feels like, okay, it's going kind of into illegality. It goes towards neo-Nazis. And of course, there's sympathies there, I think, with the FPÖ as well. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, the NPD it's been in some local governments, but it's never been in the state guy. You know, they, yeah, you could maybe call them far right. I feel like the FPU isn't as, as, as far right. They're more populist. So they're more into, into the, into the center as like the modern definition of populist goes. I mean, okay. Populism as itself, uh, was, if it was invented, but it was certainly popularized by the NSDAP, so the original Nazi party. Um, but I know this is just something I wanted to be. I wanted to mention. Oh, there's um, tea leaves at the bottom of my cup. Now I'm chewing. Oh, gray. Well, I'm going to be awake for a while longer. It seems like. Oh, it's doing this like um, chewing tobacco now. Right. I just need a spittoon. Um, anyway, quoting further from this Bellingcat story, in 2017, Jan Masalek also report, reportedly boasted in a private meeting about a trip he had made to the ruins of Palmyra in Syria as a guest of the Russian military shortly after its recapture from ISIS in 2018. <laughs> He also disclosed to business partners in London four highly sensitive classified reports from the Organization of the Prohibit 
of the prohibition of chemical weapons in the wake of Skripal's Skripal's poisoning in Salisbury. He also claimed to have the full formula of Novichok, the military-grade poison that well that was used uh, by the GRU in this Skripal's case. Uh, yeah, poison. That is some some poison. <laughs> worse than worse well I guess that's what I mean military get poison but wow yeah um yeah so international man of mystery Jan Mesodek he's still on the run which is uh, interesting so we'll see how long that'll last I think the story will probably crop back up um just to wind it down, there's now reports yesterday that uh, three other Wirecard executives have been charged. But I don't know if those are the ones that are mentioned in the story. Of course, Brown and Masalek already have um, their warrants issued against them. Now, these three other warrants, um, there were three other people mentioned in the Spiegel story, so I don't know if they're the same. Uh, those people were Oliver Bellenhaus, Alexander von Knob. So Bellenhaus was um, leading like a... Um, a subsidiary of Wirecard for the agent business. And then Susanne, Susanne Steidel, the only uh, female member of the, um, uh, you know, of the management, higher up management of the company. Now, interesting side note, uh, Steidel's uh, Wikipedia entry was recently deleted. So when this, so she had a Wikipedia entry since uh, 2008, I think at least, uh, or maybe 18 oh god i have to look this up no i think it was 2018 anyway so they announced of course by cut when when she was um promoted uh into the uh higher ups of you know into the um i think it's i think she was a board member but anyway when she, when she became a high-ranking executive they announced well i've got a woman on the board now whatever and yeah, in 2018, she had a Wikipedia article since 2018. It was deleted now as soon as the Wirecard thing kicked off um, because apparently it wasn't relevant. <laughs> and uh, people were kind of saying because she's a woman, they want, like somebody wanted to protect her or something. Like the fucking Wikipedia editors um, wanted to protect her because hey she's a woman she can't be she can't be that bad we need to protect her well i don't know she was an executive and she's now being charged so i've it seems like she was at least in on it or she was too stupid to figure it out um i'm guessing the 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 former but who knows um quick side brand I've, I've talked about this on many a podcast for decades now probably um i've never understood like the first time I learned about Wikipedia was like my mind was blown. This is amazing. It's the best thing ever. And, you know, I to this day use it a lot for research and stuff. But one thing I've never understood was like this. We need to delete this article because it's not relevant. I mean, yeah, if you're publishing, uh, you know, the, uh, the an, an actual print in encyclopedia, right? If you're publishing the, uh, what are they actually called? And I guess in Germany it would be the Brockhaus, right? I'm, I'm I'm blanking. It's been so long. I'm blanking. What's this? Uh, isn't wasn't it an Oxford Encyclopedia? Uh, I have to look this up. I guess there's. I don't know. Maybe. Anyway, if you're publishing, I don't know what my brain's doing now. Must be all the Earl Grey I'm chewing on. Um, 
you know, if you publish a, 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 a if you publish paper books like and they like encyclopedia, it's like huge, right? It's like it fills the whole uh, part of your bookshelves. Then you're like, oh yeah, we need to kind of you know stick to the stuff that's relevant. But you know, storage is cheap. That's the point of Wikipedia. You can make an article about anything. It doesn't matter. Like. The worst thing that will happen, it, it will be on some cold storage drive somewhere and will never get accessed again because nobody cares about it, nobody finds it. And then it will be on cold storage and it will, won't cost any money at all. And it's like, you've got like your problem. Hello, Wikipedia. And I've told them this for decades now, almost. Uh, your problem is not storage space. Like, you know, you've got problems. You need to raise money and stuff. I understand that, you, you know, but surely that's bandwidth mostly <laughs> you know i mean this whole relevancy thing is just hilarious why doesn't why don't they just let anybody have their own wikipedia article i mean i'm okay with deleting them when they're full of lies and propaganda or whatever um but they're not doing that often enough they're more often just deleting stuff because they're not relevant like this anyway that's the story which is crazy if only half of what the Spiegel is writing about Masalek is true, then that is already crazy. You know, him being uh, basically the, the, the second most influential man in, in uh, you know, one of Germany's uh, biggest and most lauded, certainly tech companies, but, you know, it was in the DAX. So it's one of the, is it the 30 biggest or the 50 biggest? I'll have to look that up. Uh, God, what's... What's wrong with me today? I'm, I'm falling apart. Um, uh, the 30. So it's one of G the th Germany's 30 biggest companies. And um, this is all just crazy shit. And there, there'll be lots of stuff, you know, found out about this, investigations. Um, as I said, biggest scandal in Germany's, Germany's financial history, at least the Federal Republic and I think there's going to be some interesting stuff that will come to light. Probably going to talk about it on the show. If it's really interesting, I'll, I'll keep an eye on it, certainly. Um, maybe if Masalek turns up or something. It'll be interesting if he doesn't turn up, like if he just manages to hide out with his Russian friends or something. That'll be interesting. But soon, I feel like sooner or later these people always turn up. Like you can't, can't run forever, it seems. Sooner or later you just to run afoul of somebody or somebody tracks you down. Maybe they could have like a bounty on him. I always wanted to be a bounty hunter. Ever since I saw Boba Fett, I wanted to be a bounty hunter. Man, be great. Maybe we can hunt this guy down. <laughs> I bring him to justice. Yeah, so, uh, you know, having heard of all of that, those are the people that processing your, your well, not, not in, in Wirecard's case so much, but I feel like, you know, it, we talked about plat plat before, and ah, it's just like they do these shady things, you know. Okay, plat's not as I'm not alleging that they're as shady as Wirecard, but, but you know, screen scraping and all of this. And I'm completely believe that this what they did to the cold uh, um, short seller, sorry, um, is true now because like. I mean, that was probably Masalek's department, like hiring some company that, you know, Beltrucks info, info service or whatever. Uh, you know, they, they were probably not only doing that to that one short seller, they were probably, I mean, doing this to people who found out 
stuff about Wirecard and we're going to report it and shit like that. Um, man, these these people are now payment transactions. I mean, think of PayPal. I don't think PayPal is a lot. I mean, I use it. I use it for this show, but it's been, I've, I always had a very bad feeling about it because basically, I mean, I, I think I've talked about this on the show before. I don't know in what context, but, you know, I think with the, with the plaid thing, you know, the, the, the thing that in Germany banks are like highly regulated and as a bank customer, you have all these rights and protections. And then it's like FinTech just doesn't count, you know, PayPal, they just threw all of this out of, out of the window. And now because PayPal does it, the banks want to do it as well. So we're, we're moving to, um, we're not moving to a world where like, these fintech companies are regulated like banks. No, we're moving to the world where the banks are not regulated either. And I, it's just all this shady shit, you know, PayPal just locking people's accounts, you know, not giving them their money. And then there were, there were all these stories where they were like, oh, they were banning people who were doing porn or whatever. Um, I just like, these people don't seem reliable. It's not like, or shady. It's not like banks aren't shady, you know? If you look into like Deutsche Bank and the shit they did, there was like this, this podcast, I don't know, was, what was it? Was it, uh, I think it was the daily. They once had this, this, the story about Trump. Of course, of course, it's going to be about Trump, but it was like about Deutsche Bank. And how, like, when, when Trump was running out of money for his, like, projects and, like, he was defaulting on loans and then asking for more loans. And usually if somebody defaults on a loan, for, for at least for your bank, you don't give him another loan. But he was he, he ended up with Deutsche Bank because they were trying to um, uh, get into the American market. Nobody knew them. There's, like, this whole story about how, like, they had to put up a, a sign in the lobby that told people how to, like... You know, they had heard Deutsche Bank, but they couldn't find it because they couldn't, you know, the spelling, the German spellings, like an American, apparently English speaker, native English speaker, can't, like, connect that sound of Deutsche Bank with that spelling. So they had to put, like, a, a pronunciation guide, like, next to their sign in the lobby so that people would find their office and all this shit. And then there's, like, these private bankers for Deutsche Bank who just... um even though Trump kept defaulting on loans, they just gave him more loans and like all this shit. So, you know, it's not like pretty much any other banks probably shady as well. Um, it's not like banks aren't shady, but like, it's like these guys are even, even more shady. It's, this is it's amazing. Yeah. So that's, that's that story. I hope you found it as fascinating as me. I certainly took a lot of time researching this. I mean, obviously I had to, you know, if you look at the show notes, I wrote all of that. There's like few quotes in there because I had to, you know, the original story's in German, so it's also behind a paywall. Um, but, you know, I'm going to complain about that. Um, I like people um, making money for good reporting, even though they don't know what Elon Musk made his money with. But yeah, fascinating. I hope, um, I mean, you can you can write in how you feel about me missing the the Wednesday uh, date. I hope um, take, I mean, I could have, I had a decision yesterday where it's like, I could have just stopped there and done the show and have it out Wednesday, but the show wouldn't have been as good. Um, so I'd rather do more research and research the story better and put it out a day late or whatever. 
Although I'm not, I'm trying not to make that a habit. I'm, I'm still feeling bad about it. And as you can probably tell, and I'm, I'm trying to not do that anyway. Um, with that, let's, let's get into, um, some of the feedback. Let's talk about, uh, what, what people have been writing me about previous episodes of the show. So first, uh, first I need to mention that a lot of producers have, prompted me to look into the Irish contact tracing app, which I guess was just released um, this week, I guess. And I will do so. Um, I don't know if it's a story for the show yet. Uh, I'll have to do some research and I've got some. So even if I do the research and I'm like, okay, this is definitely a story. Don't know if I can do it in the next week or two. Uh, there's lots, lots of shit going on in my life unsurprisingly right now we'll see but i look into it um i thanks for thinking of me and and you know telling me about it otherwise i probably have missed it with all the shit that's going on and uh we'll, we'll see if it's an uh interesting enough story and you know has enough if, if i can find out enough stuff then i might talk about it on the show um our anonymous canadian producer sent me some further information about, you know, COVID-19 and reporting about it in um, Canadian uh, media, which I've looked into. And they also say, keep up the good work. Your podcast this week was another work of excellence. That is high praise indeed. Thank you very much. Um, Martin says also about a previous discussion that I was having with him. I just wanted to say, I do take the discussion in good spirit. In fact, I think we have been, so he, I should cut this down. Um, he talks about, you know, where I was thinking that I was probably misunderstanding him and I was saying, uh, so this is how I see it, but actually we seem to agree on more things than, than I thought. And he, uh, he says, I just want to say that I do take the discussion in good spirit. In fact, I think we have been talking slightly cross purposes as, as I don't disagree with you much. Uh, I don't disagree with much you have said at all. Uh, Asterix, which I'm going to get to in a bit. You have often said I misunderstood you when I don't think I did and ended up reiterating the same points I was trying to make. I think this is just the limitation of the email format and trying to be as concise as possible about complicated topics. That is a distinct possibility. Now, Martin has a little asterisk uh, above uh, disagree. I don't disagree with much you have said at all that says apart from the use of exclamation marks for exclamation marks and is pointing to the exclamation marks and says, uh, and, and says I think that's what Pratchett was talking about and it's a low blow as I absolutely never do that exclamation mark. Yes, uh, Pratchett was definitely in this, um, I think it's in several books, he was talking about how people use several excl exclamation marks behind one statement Um are probably mad. Although, you know, if you use just one exclamation mark, but do that every other sentence, um, it kind of, I don't know, I feel like it's in the same spirit of the thing Pratchett was uh, planning about. I mean, uh, Pratchett was for quite a long time, I think, was a journalist. So, you know, he had editors edit his stuff. And this is something, if you do it, that gets pointed very early on. So I guess it's probably a pet peeve of his. And journalists have this pet peeve quite often because they get lots of um, readers uh, commenting and they often use a lot of exclamation marks more than probably is healthy. But I do like that he did it with an asterisk, which is very terrible. He likes to do that as well. I actually know a person who did their English 
um, I think MA uh, dissertation about the use of ex uh, of um, not exclamation marks uh, the use of uh, footnotes in Terry Pratchett's work, which I was thought was a great that's a great dissertation. Um, Barry Williams uh, from the uh, beautiful land of Oz. Uh, observes regarding uh, my ongoing discussion uh, we talked i talk a lot about journalism because i'm a journalist uh, of the nuts and bolts of being a journalist and uh, barry says one thing that strikes me i was alluding to this earlier one thing that strikes me with the inside baseball you give about journalism is how difficult it is to keep tight-lipped when you get sources of the record i know how careful you protect your sources but i but it must be so frustrating when you have some information and you have to find the source you can quote i think it will also technically be impossible not to include some information they give you if you do not explicitly find another source for it as always i do enjoy a peek behind the curtain of journalism cheers mate well this has several i have several comments on this first off yes it's hard to well i i'm not i'm not good at keeping things secret which is why i'm a journalist which is great usually because your job is bring stuff into the light and i hate it when i when i research something and find out something if i can't use it um because i don't have enough sources um i there are ways around this um you know journalism is a, mostly a craft it's not so much an art form it's pretty much a craft and it has developed over the last i don't know 100 years um has developed a, a, a tools for this kind of stuff so you can always if you want to say something and you are convinced of something and you don't have enough sources for an article, you can always do like a, an op-ed. You know, you can write a an opinion piece where you can convey what you feel and you kind of can hint why you do that without having to source it. There's also tricks. Uh, so if you if you have a source that tells you something uh, which you didn't know and probably the public doesn't know. I'm going to give away some trade secrets here. Uh, it's not really trade secrets, but an hour and a half into the show. If you're listening to this and you always want to become a journalist, here's, here's some hints, um, stuff that you pick up when you do this for a few years. So you have a source that tells you something that isn't public information um, that you, um, and I've done this often, um, that you... Um, I was actually, this is like, you get told this by other editors, right? That I've been at the place longer than you, and you have, and you, you pick up all these tricks. So you have a source that tells you some, some information that isn't public knowledge, but you can't quote the source because they said it's off the record. Um, so you can try and get somebody else to state this on the record. And this will work more often than not. So you could get in a, so let's say it's a company. Let's say somebody, you know, semi whistleblower within the company tells me something. So it's like, okay, we have this, this, this is going on and they don't really want the public to know this. Um, I'm telling it to you now, but you can't quote me. And you can then start like a, a, a formal thing where you write the PR office of the company and you're like, um, I want to talk to you or like, you know, some guy and it's, it's tangent. You, you make up something that's, or you, you, you pick the area from where you know where the, the problem or whatever the information is from. And you're like, you're pretending to them. You're, you're doing a general uh, story about this. 
right? And then you get somebody on the record in an interview setting and you start asking them questions about stuff. And you start out, you ask them a lot of questions about that field and you obviously you don't start off with the, the, the one you want to ask. You, you do all this kind of stuff. And you get them, you get them to trust you a little bit, which, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's always dangerous business trusting a journalist because we're not, we're not in this job to make friends. We're in this job to get the information out. But um, the truth, one would say, quote Trevor Pratchett, the truth! Um, the, the, the truth shall make you sick. Um, and then you 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 just put that question in somewhere. You know, you you, you ask them pretty pointedly, not so that they kind of know that you know what you're asking about and you just want it on the record. I mean, you 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 have to you have to use finesse, but you can kind of sometimes get people to tell you about stuff. Then, um, sometimes it's very easy. Like sometimes, like I know this, right? You can sometimes if it's just a big or it's just something you know once you know you know nobody else knows but you know once you know it'll become public right at some point so you can you can go and say look i know what's going on this is what's going on i will write about this you know maybe you don't really you you don't tell them like okay i know about this but i have a source i can't quote right then then they know you you don't have any you, you basically pretend you have sources and then you tell them, look, or you you pretend you have sources you can quote on the record. Yeah, you know, this is journalism. Sometimes a bit dirty, you know. It's the stuff we do. And then you can you can go like, um, I'm going to write about this anyway. So here's your chance to give your side of the story, and which is valuable. I mean, which is you know that's that's the thing you do. It's valuable to companies, and sometimes they come to you and do that stuff. Um, you know, want to tell their part of the story. But in this way, you can also get them to admit what the problem was. You know, what the original thing is. There's like all these little tricks. So let's put it that way. I've in my almost... oh. So if you, if you say like my first professional job as a journalist, uh, you know, in my... Oh God, uh, almost you know, eight years, more than eight years now almost a decade of doing this i've never had a story where i found something out where i had something from a source i couldn't quote that i haven't gotten out i've always managed to to finagle something or you know in the in the very very least you just write a well you can write an opinion out you can also do um Basically, what the Spiegel has done here, I would like in you know in the case we're talking about today, I like to do it more transparently. I like to like say in the beginning of the story, look, we have this information from a whistleblower, or I don't know, from a very very credible source. I know the source. I vetted this, but the problem is this is my only source. I can't verify this information any other way. But everything I've done, everything I've checked makes me think this is plausible. I mean, this is kind of what I did with that guy from the TÜV and the Corona app. You know, I talked last last episode about, uh, you know, uh, criticism that came up around that story. And what you do is just to make that very clear. I talked with this guy 
and well in that case it wasn't like he he wasn't a hidden source or whatever in in this case it was just like one guy who i had on the record saying something that i couldn't verify anywhere else that nobody else would verify it's kind of the same thing it's a bit better source but you know you just go you're being transparent you say this is the this is what we have i have a source who i can't name and this is the story you know, and I, I criticize these stories, you know, when they happen in the New York Times or whatever. Um, but, you know, I always, always also keep in mind, like, what is the subject and what who is doing it? Like, you know, if you're the New York Times and you're doing that or you're the Spiegel, like in this um, uh, example we have here, and I say it's like it's like sourced very lightly. Um, if it's Der Spiegel, if it's a title, it's a cover story and it has like eight, eight editors on there, you know, they have fucking resources, right? I expect more from them than I can do as a small freelance journalist or some guy when I worked for Heiser, you know. I mean, it's a it's big publication in the tech world, but anywhere else, like nobody, lots of people I talked to didn't even know what Heiser was. Right? They were like, who? What? I said online, what's that? Because they weren't techies, they weren't nerds, right? So your resources on that back. And I was always doing these stories pretty much all the time, doing them on my own. Um, so that there's different, you know, the bigger the publication, the more the more resources they have, the more you can generally expect them to source stuff better. But sometimes there's just no other way. Like in this story, I mean, that's part of the, we talked about kind of how, how to evaluate, you know, with Mike, I talked about journalism and stuff and how to evaluate this stuff. This is, this is part on that scale. Like how likely is, like how, if you have a story where they just say, your source is familiar with the matter, blah, 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 blah. And if you like, well, well, they could have sourced, like there's a way I, I can think of as just as a reader, how to verify the story. And they haven't done that, right? That, that That's a red flag. Here, you're like, this is a very shady company. This is, it looks like only the executives knew about this. They're not going to talk about this. They're, they're indicted, right? There's, there's investigations going on. The police is not going to talk about that. The prosecutor's office is not going to talk about it. all these people that are implicated, whatever. They're not going to talk about this, but we have like sources. And it, with stuff like this falling apart, there's likely that uh, a huge place known, Der Spiegel is the most well known publication in Germany by far so people know this publication right so that they, they will have sources and they'll do they, they've been doing this business stuff for decades and decades and decades so it's it's plausible that they got this information and the information is plausible right so this is kind of how you evaluate it um and uh barry also said i think it's also will also technically be impossible not to include some information they give you if you do not explicitly find another source well it is technically possible i think yeah i mean the that is part of the craft to delineate this very 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 clearly and you can do that um and i've i've done this all the time like also i had so i'm writing a story i have sources and i have an information i have information from a source and um i feel like it's plausible but it's not on the record i will just not put it in the story this is why one of the things where you have a notebook like i'm a journalist like if you would look at my desk right now i've got a stack of one two three four five six seven eight nine actually ten notebooks lying here uh stacked and it's all like all these different sizes and all for different things that's why you have my other people are reduced in files i'm old school i use actually leather bound or you know you know kind of uh, moleskin uh, actually 
Leuchtturm, mostly uh, notebooks. And this is where you file that stuff away. And it's so often that you get like this information that sometimes you can't use it. Like I described earlier, sometimes you can't get anybody, any, any information out of somebody, but you'll just file it away and you covering a certain beat, right? So this stuff, stuff will come around again. And a half a year from now, I mean, I had this so often I file something away half a year later. This other story comes along. I'm like, Oh, this. This puts this thing into another light, or I get a new source, and I, suddenly it's a story, and suddenly I can publish it. And uh, that's just how it goes. And sometimes, you know, sometimes some information. I said, you know, usually if it's a story in my in my whole career as a journal, I've always made it a story. I always managed to get that someplace. But of course, there's been tons of information. There's been whole interviews I haven't used. Um, you know, that 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 always happens. But it's. Uh, if you get the story done, but you know, sometimes just certain information you can't use or you'll use later or whatever. Yeah. And that's it for the feedback. Thanks for writing in, uh, all of you, um, please consider doing so yourself. If you have a comment on the show, I find it very important and let me wind this up because it is now uh, half past 10 and I will have to put the show out. So it'll at least come out on Thursday. Um, so just let me very quickly mention that this show is produced under the value for value model, which means everybody who pitches in in some way or another, and it might just be writing me an email, correcting me on my spelling in the show notes, anything, you're a producer, you helped um, make the show come to life. But to to be realistic here, I need to earn some money. Uh, you know, freelance journalism, I'm not, I'm not swimming in it. Um, I've just... Uh, paid about 4,000 euros to, uh, re- to get my motorbike repaired or I'm in the process of doing that. So <clears throat> um, if you get some value from this, um, please provide that value back or consider doing so. Um, there are two ways right now. Um, if you have other suggestions, I'm always open um, via the aforementioned emails. But so far in the moment you can become a patron at patreon uh, which means you will pick a monthly um support tier for the show i actually have to look this up i'm I'm so discombobulated today i don't know so currently we have a one dollar two dollar five dollar or ten dollar a month tier if you think you want to give me more money uh, you can always use PayPal, um, or you can just use that for one-off donation. But I think you can also do like PayPal subscriptions. You know, just send people money every month. Um, on PayPal, you can do that uh, via the email address producers at fab dot industries, producers at fab dot industries, and you know all of this in the show notes, of course. Uh, my Patreon, if you want to actually go there right now on your phone and you can't go to the show notes you can go to patreon.com slash fabsh f-a-b-s-h foxtrot alpha bravo sierra hotel so um and with that i'd like to thank everybody who who did that but before that i need to thank raul kabazali who wrote the theme tune for this podcast if a song called acoustic roots and I licensed that, but I'd like to mention his name because he's a great musician, uh, as you can hear from that song, and I think he should people should know about him. Um, 
I'm also thankful to Bitemark, which is the UK hosting company. They do cloud hosting, bitemark.co.uk. They provide the servers that serve you the audio files, which is something I couldn't afford on my own. So um, I'm thankful for them. Um, other than that, uh, just just uh, leaves me to mention just all the all the producers who sent me some money and made this uh, made doing this podcast worth my while, which I always say and I do mean that I appreciate it a lot. So those people are Niall Donegan, Michael Mullen Jensen, Jonathan M. Heavy, Georges Walther, Dave, Rashid Alamani. Butterbeans, Kai Sears, Mark Holland, Stefos, Shelby Kruver, Vlad, Fadi Mansour, Jackie Plage, 1I11G, Matt Jalloman, Joe Poser, Philip Klosterman, IKN, Dirk Didi, Jaroslav Lichtblau, Dave Amrish, David Potter, Mika, Vitautas Sadaskus, Ricky M, Drive Zero, Martin, Jonathan Edwards, aforementioned Barry Williams, Silvio Vulcan, and SJ, thanks to all of you. I do appreciate it a lot. And with that, I'll, I'll hope to see you next Wednesday. I'll give my best. I promise. I'll, I'll be better um, with another episode of The Private Citizen. I hope you enjoyed this. Until then, aim to misbehave. <laughs> <laughs>